John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm not doing too badly. Uh, It's been an interesting week for me. I'm actually talking to you today from the great state of California, where I, yeah, it's, uh, it was an interesting drive out. First of all, if you ever have the opportunity or desire to drive through New Mexico and Arizona, I highly encourage it. It is absolutely beautiful going through the mountains. It was a very enjoyable drive, you know, chance to get out of the house a little bit. Um, I'm here socially distancing with some family. They're they're expecting a new one, and so I'm here to kind of help out as best as I can. And uh, it's a it's a good time all around. Very nice. Sounds like a pleasant drive. It was. It was. It was. It was enjoyable. <laughs> good deal. So. So what are we talking about today, John? Today we are talking about a little night music. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, with a book by Hugh Wheeler, based on the Ingmar Bergman film, Smiles of a Summer Night. The show opened in February of 1973 at the Schubert Theater, then transferred to the Majestic Theater, and closed in August of 1974, having played for 601 performances. The show has toured and had several revivals, including a 2009 Broadway revival at the Walter Kerr Theater that opened in December and ran into January of 2011, having played for 425 performances. The original production was directed by Harold Prince, with choreography by Patricia Birch and musical direction by Harold Hastings. And the original cast included Len Carew as Frederick Eggerman, Victoria Mallory as Anne Eggerman, Mark Lambert in his Broadway debut as Henrik Eggerman, Hermione Gingold as Madame Armfelt, Glynn's Johns as Desiree Armfelt, Judy Cahan in her Broadway debut as Frederica Armfelt, Patricia Elliott as the Countess Charlotte Malcolm, Lawrence Guitard as Count Carl Magnus Malcolm, and D. Jamin Bartlett in her Broadway debut as Petra. I'm going to find a show with more names next time. The original production was nominated for 12 Tony Awards and won six, including Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Actress in a Musical, and Best Original Score. A Little Night Music begins with five singers, often referred to as the Liebesleaders, though Sondheim did give them all names, entering the stage and vocally warming up. Throughout the show, these five singers will offer musical commentary on the action that is happening, similar to a Greek chorus. This warm-up transitions into a choreographed overture in which we see all the characters of the show dancing awkwardly with their partners. In the first scene, we meet the aging and worldly-wise Madame Armfelt and her granddaughter, Frederica. Madame Armfelt tells Frederica that the summer night smiles three times, first on the young, second on the fools, and third on the old. Frederica vows to watch for the smiles. Next, we are introduced to the middle-aged lawyer, Frederick Eggerman, and his 18-year-old trophy wife, Anne. 
They've been married for 11 months, but have yet to consummate the marriage. Eggerman is plotting how he might finally seduce his wife. At the same time, Eggerman's son, Henrik, who is a seminary student and a year older than his new stepmother, expresses his own frustrations while playing the cello. Ultimately, Anne consents to have sex with Eggerman soon. After meeting the Eggermans, we are introduced to Desiree Armfelt, Madame Armfelt's daughter and Frederica's mother. Desiree, formerly a prominent actress, is now reduced to touring small towns, but she holds on to the glamorous life and continues to delay returning home to Frederica. At that evening's show, Desiree sees Eggerman and Anne in the audience. This sparks memories for both of them, as they were lovers many years ago. Anne noticed Desiree's looks towards Eggerman. This makes her worried and annoyed, and Anne demands that Eggerman take her home before the conclusion of the play. That night, Eggerman sneaks out of his house to go and visit Desiree. The two catch up and reflect upon their past and present. Upon learning that Eggerman hasn't had sex in 11 months, she agrees to indulge him, while we hear Madame Armfelt sing a lament about the way women behave today and how liaisons used to be handled in her day. Desiree and Eggerman are interrupted by the arrival of Count Carl Magnus, Desiree's current affair. While they manage to convince the Count that nothing out of the ordinary has happened, the Count is immediately suspicious of Eggerman. The Count returns home to his wife, Charlotte, who is aware of the affair he is having and expresses his suspicions and frustrations. We then learn that Charlotte has a connection to Anne, and she decides to go to her and visit. Anne is shocked and hurt to learn of Eggerman's betrayal, but Charlotte explains to her that this is how things are for a wife and that love brings a little death every day. Act one ends with Desiree convincing her mother to invite the Eggermans for a weekend in the country at her estate. Anne doesn't want to go, but Charlotte convinces her to do so. When the Count learns about this trip, he plans to attend uninvited and to challenge Eggerman to a duel. Charlotte herself is plotting to seduce Eggerman with the hope of making her husband jealous and putting an end to his philandering. Act 2 begins with a series of waltzes in which each character has their eye on their own personal objectives. Frederick Eggerman is surprised to learn Desiree's daughter is named Frederica. Henrik Eggerman confesses his deep attraction to Anne to Frederica, and both Eggerman and Carl Magnus reflect independently on how difficult it is to be attracted to Desiree. Dinner is served. Over the meal, tensions begin to build until finally everyone is yelling at everyone else until Henrik erupts and scolds them all for their awful behavior before running off. This leaves everyone stunned, reflecting on their own actions. Frederica tells Anne of Henrik's attraction to her, and the two run off to find him. Frederick admits to Desiree that he loves her, but that he can't bring himself to leave Anne. This prompts her famous reflection upon their relationship. Send in the clowns. Anne and Frederica catch up to Henrik just as he's failing to kill himself. Anne confesses that she loves Henrik too. The two kiss and go further than that. This is underscored by Petra, Anne's maidservant, singing about how a girl ought to celebrate what passes by. Our first music not in some form of three in the whole evening. 
Charlotte finds Eggerman sitting on a bench, and she confesses her plan to attempt to seduce him. The two of them see Anne and Henrik run away happily together. Carl Magnus sees Charlotte and Edgerman together and challenges him to a game of Russian roulette. The nervous Eggerman misfires and grazes his own ear. Victorious, Carl Magnus turns to Charlotte and begins to romance her, granting her ultimate wish. Frederica is left confused by all of this, and she confesses to Madame Armfelt that she doesn't understand what all this is for, but she decides that love must be worth it. This surprises, but pleases, Madame Armfelt. Finally left alone, Eggerman and Desiree confess their mutual love. Desiree admits that Frederica is Frederick's child, and the two promise to start a new life together. Frederica tells Madame Armfelt that she has been watching carefully, but still hasn't seen the knight smile. Madame Armfelt laughs and points out that the knight has already smiled on the young, on Anne and Hendrick, and on the fools, on Frederick and Desiree, and that Frederica must watch for the smile on the old. As the two wait for the third and final smile, Madame Armfelt closes her eyes and peacefully dies with Frederica next to her. So I feel very lucky that I've gotten a chance to work on this show because it's not a show that's done very often of the kind of popular Sondheim shows. I feel like this is maybe on the the less popular side of things. But one of the great things about this show is Jonathan Tunick's orchestrations. They are truly fantastic. Uh, There was a uh, film adaptation of this musical and he actually won an Oscar for his score for the film. It's interesting because for so many of the, as you as you put it, popular Sondheim shows, Jonathan Tunick has been so, pardon the pun, instrumental in a lot of these shows. He's done the orchestrations for Little Night Music. He's done the orchestrations for Into the Woods. He's done the instrument, uh, uh, the orchestrations for Passions. Basically, if it's a big Sondheim hit, and the public knows it, and the public loves it. Jonathan Tunick is part of that project. And I think it shows. I mean, you know, Sondheim's music and writing is genius. It is brilliant. But the orchestrations, at least for me, take it to a whole nother level. I mean, there is classical music usage in here that for me elevates it beyond sort of a stereotypical Broadway sound. I mean, one of my favorite moments comes at the end of act one, where there's actually a Richard Strauss quote from the opera, Dear Rosen Cavalier. He quotes the very beginning in the horns, which, you know, why? Because Rosen Cavalier is an opera about a weekend in the country. And to pull little snippets like that just is, it, it tickles the classical music nerd inside of me. Well, we can even take that a step further. The title of the show is A Little Night Music, which, if you're a music nerd like us, immediately throws a connotation to the Mozart divertimento of the same name, um, which everybody knows whether they know the name of uh, the name of it or not. The bum, 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 bum. That's Little Night Music right there. And, you know, ultimately, we... You, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but and I know we're going to get a lot more into it. 
for me personally, this show is a love letter partially to the idea of the waltz in its classical form, but also a love letter to opera. It, to me, has always evoked a feeling of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, to a degree, Magic Flute, but also my early listenings, I always just got this Richard Strauss, Dare Rosen Cavalier vibe from it. It has this this sweeping romanticism going through it, and it almost it it, it for me ultimately a little night music straddles the line between an opera feel and a musical feel. This is not your typical Broadway sound. It's absolutely not. And I should say, when I was working on this show, it was actually with an opera company. And one of the things that makes this show appealing to an opera company is that the orchestrations are written for a more traditional orchestra. A typical Broadway show has these doubling books where an individual is playing multiple instruments. This show doesn't so much have that. It's pretty straightforward, normal. Everybody has their own part, which makes it something that opera companies can take and do more approachably. And it is really grand when you elevate this to the operatic level of drama. Well, and we were talking about it earlier before we started recording. If I were an opera manager and I wanted to sell tickets, a short three-show season for me that I feel would make money is you open with Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, you do Sondheim's A Little Night Music, and then you end with Strauss's Rosen Cavalier. All three well-known shows to your target audience. And yes, while you have a quote-unquote musical in the middle there, there's a natural flow between the three that would appeal to a greater audience, especially an opera-going audience. And it might even draw in some of your musical fans who will look at look at night music, but also look at the Mozart and look at the Strauss and say, okay, the line is a little bit more blurred here than we may have necessarily thought. Absolutely. And I think another element that adds to that is Sondheim's use of the the leadist leaders, though, again, I want to highlight that's not a Sondheim term. He gave all of the characters, these five kind of Greek chorus singers, he gave them all names. It's just sort of been more colloquially referred to as leadist leaders for the ease of not having to name five individuals in conversation. But they've really, they don't interact with the characters of the story at all, they really are truly just there providing commentary. And they do that a lot throughout the show in some of the most dramatic and intimate moments in a way that feels very operatic to me. I agree. Though I do find it interesting, especially how the Liebes leaders are used more towards the beginning, I almost get a Rodgers and Hammerstein vibe off of them as well. This concept of these vocalists creating music, not necessarily with dialogue, but their interplay and working together. The overture and the opening of the show meld together, and it really is upon these Liebes leaders to set the stage. I mean, the, the show opens with just this low drone on the cello and bass that just goes and the first musical impetus the mu- the musical thought that is that that opens this whole thing are these Liebes leaders 
putting these little motives together and it builds and it builds and it builds. It's almost like, again, the Straussian idea of having the waltz in the distance and you catch a little snippet here, you catch a little snippet there. As you walk closer to the ballroom, things get a little bit more concrete and get a little bit more substantial. And eventually you throw open the door and all of a sudden there's just this beautiful waltz music going that's how this beginning has always been to me is this um, this metaphorical walking to the hall the door opens and all of a sudden there you are in the show there you are in the moment setting it up not like a traditional broadway overture would but being as effective it's very interesting the way so the opening you're describing is the way they did it in the revival in the original production and in the production that I did we had a, a well a fake onstage piano and a real pianist in the pit and the singers kind of rush onto the stage and they pound out a note on the piano and then they start singing these very very fast kind of ornamental warm-ups and it's sort of like a rush right into the show as opposed to a kind of build up sort of ethereal entrance to it but they both get to the same waltz right away that takes you into this fragmented world it almost becomes two sides of the same coin as a sense as opposed to this idea of music of the spheres versus well let's stretch a little bit and let's let's get those muscles loose and away we go yeah it's definitely if you listen to the opening of the original broadway recording versus the 2009 10 revival it's it's a very different contrast but it's you know it's definitely telling the same story it's it's interesting to check out so is it time to talk about the pervasiveness of three john yes 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 (laughs) so that was that was wonderfully awful thank you for doing that thank you no problem so three as a number and as a concept is all over this show. We mentioned in our uh, summary synopsis that there's really only one moment in the show where you get music that's kind of typically grouped in two. That's not entirely accurate, but it is the only time where you get music that is metrically printed in a clear divisible by two grouping as opposed to divisible by three So throughout the show, until this moment for Petra, Sondheim is using meters that are either something like a 3-4, which could be grouped in threes, or compound meters like 6-8 and 12-8, which even though they're, they're more divisible by two numbers, they have this kind of internal groupings of three that is just emphasizing sometimes a waltz feel, but other times just a metric propulsion with a three feel throughout. There's also a lot of threes on stage. I mean, you have multiple love triangles, and then you also have really clever moments like the duet between Eggerman and the Count, where they're singing about one individual third person. So even though there's only two people singing, there's that implied third person getting three people into the picture. So then the question becomes, amidst all of this three, why does Petra get two? I wonder, this is for me personally, but I wonder if it's because she's not involved per se. Petra isn't 
part of the three. There's there is there is no three for Petra. She's not in in one of our couples. She's not the young or the middle aged or the elderly, but she's also not one of the Libus leaders. So she doesn't exist in this Greek chorus idea of existing out partially outside the story. And so Petra almost becomes an analog for the audience at times where it's, it's presenting a commentary, but not necessarily so removed like this Libas leaders are that she can offer a commentary on the whole because she still exists as a character. Yeah. I don't know if I, I think that she serves as an analog for the audience so much as she's playing the classically stereotypical, more worldly wise made character, like, in a marriage of Figaro, the Susanna who knows so much more than the Countess here, Petra knows so much more about the world than Anne. And I think, you know, you're, you're, you're right. She is separate from the threes. And more importantly, she's just separate from this world. She's apart from all of these entanglements and these the, the foolishness that has led to all of the characters in the show being in the situations that they're in. She is a liberated character who knows what she wants and is going to take it and make it happen. And that's, I think, why she gets that independent duple music. And with her in this position as Anne's maidservant, it gives her a sense of independence. Yes, she works for Anne. Yes, she works under Anne. But she still has her own ideas. She has her own morality. She has her own sense of what is right and wrong. And that duple just gives her the opportunity to express it. And it shows that individuality. Absolutely. And it definitely, at least for me as a listener, really comes as a shock. I mean, it's pretty close to the end of the show when we get her song, The Miller's Son, that has this duple moment. And after all of this, either straight three or compound or however it is, this triplet subdivision throughout, to get duples is suddenly like a real big energy change. And it's, it's noticeable. If you haven't heard A Little Night Music, you absolutely should. It is a gem of a show with some beautiful music throughout, including but not limited to Send in the Clowns. Normally, this is the part where John would recommend a recording for you to listen to, but I'm going to step in and tell you, you should listen to all of them. Because the original Broadway cast and the 2010 revival cast are very commonly out there, and they're both absolutely stunningly beautiful. They each bring their own little bit to the show and put their stamp on it, but are valid in their own rights. If you want to really, really test your ear, go listen to the first 30 seconds of Strauss's Der Rosen Cavalier and try to figure out where it's quoted in A Weekend in the Country at the end of Act One. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.